So I um, just came back from teaching this metta retreat. Metta is a word, Pali word for friendliness, kindness, love on the East Coast with Sharon, as I mentioned, Sharon Salzburg. And uh, it's an annual retreat we've done for many years, and it's usually uh, spans Valentine's Day, which is always interesting to do a retreat on love uh, at that time of year, this time of year. Um, and it's actually a very sweet time to uh, be doing a meta retreat. Um, So, but it always, it always is an interesting juxtaposition when studying and practicing and teaching about metta, which is a very profound quality of love and unconditional and quite different than our ordinary, more everyday experience and um, perception of romantic love, which is often not so unconditional, as you may have noticed. <laughs> so, um, so I'll talk a little, I want to talk a little about uh, romantic love. Uh, I don't think I'm very qualified to talk about romantic love, but I'll say a little about it anyway. <laughs> and um, give a little history about uh, courtly love, which is where this whole romantic idealism came from in the 12th century and how it really still is very very un- underpins and steeped in the culture and our views about romance in, at least in western culture and then talk a little about uh, the sense of love from a buddhist perspective and, and the more boundless quality of love that's possible and available <laughs> both in relationship and out of it. I wanted to read this poem um, by David White called The True Love. And it seems like a good poem to read on Valentine's night. It's a long one, so settle in. There is a faith in loving fiercely the one who is rightfully yours especially if you have waited years, and especially if part of you never believed you could deserve this loved and beckoning hand held out to you this way. I am thinking of faith now and the testaments of loneliness, and I think of the story of the storm and everyone waking and seeing the distant yet familiar figure far across the water calling to them, and how we are all preparing for that abrupt waking and that calling, and that moment we have to say yes, except it will not come so grandly, so biblically, but more subtly and intimately in the face of the one you know you have to love. So that when we finally step out of the boat towards them, we find everything holds us and confirms our courage. And if you wanted to drown, you could, but you don't. Because finally, after all the struggle and all the years, you don't want to anymore. You've simply had enough of drowning, and you want to live, and you want to love, and you will walk across any territory and any darkness, however fluid and however dangerous, to take the one hand you know belongs in yours. 
So I think it's a very beautiful poem about love and its calling, whether it's romantic or otherwise. So, um, so it's an interesting uh, evening to talk. Um, it always feels like a setup having to teach on Valentine's Day <laughs> in some way. Um, so there's either an expectation that the talk will be about love or some deep hope that it won't be about love. <laughs> so you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. So, well, I mean, we're all damned anyway, so. <laughs> this is from Hafez. We are people who need to love because love is the soul's life. Love is simply creation's greatest joy. So it is interesting, this, this, um, this cultural thing we have around Valentine's Day. And uh, you know, some of you will probably like it. Some of you probably hate it. Some of you probably spend a lifetime avoiding it. Um, but it's interesting to explore, like with anything, it's interesting to explore what you know, our relationship to things, right? This is a big cultural thing of the year, one of the many cultural things of the year. And, and to understand what our reaction is to it. Even if we ignore it, there's usually some form of something in, there's a reason why we ignore it or avoid it or are cynical about it. There's a cartoon. Where's the cartoon? I wonder if that cartoon made it. So there's a cartoon of a, of, a, of a couple, and it's obviously Valentine's evening, and, um, and the man's saying to the woman, and they just had the dinner, and she's about to get up and go wash the dishes. He said, oh, honey, don't, you don't need to wash the dishes. It's Valentine's Day. You can do them tomorrow. So this is for the cynics in the room. This is Samuel Johnson. Marriage is the triumph of imagination over intelligence. <laughs> Second marriage is the triumph of hope over experience. <laughs> so and this is from Agatha Christie. An archaeologist is the best husband any woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. <laughs> And from another cynic, perhaps, the perfect love affair is one, this is from George Bernard Shaw, the perfect love affair is one which is conducted entirely by post, <laughs> by mail, or email. <laughs> There's a lot of those happen these days. It's called match.com or something. So again, just to reflect on what your what your um, feeling, reaction, aversion, desire is around, you know, this, this hallmarked version of love that we're in today. This is from Woody Allen, who's always got interesting things to say about things. You need to pay attention for this one. To love is to suffer. <laughs> to avoid suffering, one must not love but then one suffers from not loving. Therefore, to love is to suffer, not to love is to suffer. To suffer is to suffer. To be happy is to love. 
To be happy then is to suffer. But suffering makes one unhappy. Therefore, to be unhappy, one must love or love to suffer or suffer from too much happiness. I hope you're getting all of this. (laughs) So, damned if you do, damned if you don't. So, there's not anybody in the room who has not experienced both the joys and the sorrows of love. Whatever form of love, whether that's familiar love, parental love, relational love. And it reminds me of the, um, the teaching that the Buddha gives about the, what he calls the worldly winds, the vicissitudes of life. That these um, uh, conditions of life that ebb and flow and change in, and, and blow through our lives with ups and downs. And they apply to love and relationship and romance as, it, as to anything else. There's pleasure and pain. Anybody experience pleasure and pain in relationship to relationship? Gain and loss. Praise and blame. Feels very apropos to relationship and love. Sometimes you're adored and sometimes you're reviled. And uh, fame and disrepute, a little less relevant, but pleasure, pain, gain, loss, praise and blame. How many times are we experiencing those ups and downs, those rides in the context of relationship, romantic relationship or otherwise? So the practice from from the point of view of the teachings is how we ride those ups and downs, because life is going to be full of those, and especially love and especially romantic love. So before I diss Valentine's too much, which I'm trying not to do, because some of you may love this holiday or this thing. Um, I know I notice I'm from England, and, and um, in England it's not quite, and it's, it's celebrated, but not quite in the same way as it is here. I notice in England it's more specifically between couples, and here it's, I notice, with children, parents, and school teachers, and I had a client came today and she gave me some chocolate and I said, oh, that's that's an interesting take on Valentine's. Um, Anyhow, so um, I wanted to play a song um, because I like to play music when I teach. And it's a beautiful song about love, romantic love, by Joe Cocker. You may know this song, I'm sure most of you do. So again, just listen to the song, the lyrics, and um, if I can get this thing to work. Um, Just notice what gets evoked in you. Liking, disliking. Um, You have the audio turned up on your... Just let it flow through you. To me, 
How was that? Isn't that beautiful? Tear rendering, yes, very tear rendering. That's the, you know, this is, yeah, beautiful. Yes? Are you taking a thought? Because I'm having a thought. You're having a thought? <laughs> What's that thought? Beautiful. Yeah, did everybody hear that? No. So she's saying that, you know, she's, she's hearing a song now as opposed to younger that um, although part of us still believes that, it, and at this point it's more that God, the, 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 the lyrics are both God singing to her, both giving and receiving as opposed to being just more on the relationship realm. Yeah, beautiful. Now I want to speak to that later if I get time. So I wanted to play that too, because um, it's, it's very easy to be cynical. And love is a very easy thing to be cynical about, because we've all been hurt, and we've all been disappointed, and we've all been let down. And, um, and there's a lot of beauty and innocence in it, even in the romantic realm. This is from Romeo and Juliet. <clears throat> One fairer than my love, says Juliet, the all-seeing sun. Sorry, this is Romeo. One fairer than my love, the all-seeing sun, never saw her match since first the world begun. See how she leans her cheek upon her hand. Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand, that I might touch that cheek. Her beauty makes this vault a feasting presence of light. 
So, so we live in this culture where this, the, the, the romantic ideal is really um, esteemed. Yeah? It's really something that we've been conditioned by as we've grown up, culturally, music, film, literature, art, theater. Yeah, it's kind of, we get it from all sides, from friends, peers, pressure. So um, I was reading about some of the history of romantic love. Um, there's a great book, well, Samuel Johnson, not Samuel Johnson, um, what's his name? I meant to bring the books in, but I forgot. Um, someone will know these books. Uh, he wrote He, We, She. Robert Johnson, not Samuel Johnson. Robert Johnson, right? Great psychologist, wonderful books, young and young and psychologist. Um, and some of this info that I have about courtly love and romantic love is from we. Um, that began in the 12th century, and it's a very interesting story. It became it began in the culture of the knights. And it was um, a way of, um, it was a culture of idealizing and spiritualizing love, of removing it from physical passion. And, uh, and it was a way of um, idealizing the, the feeling between men and women. And it was apparently rose out of an opposition to the past patriarchal attitudes towards women and idealize the feminine. And so it taught the knight to worship in the feminine by idealizing certain qualities, to see the divine, going back to your point, to see the divine embodied in the feminine. And some of the rules about this kind of courtly love was that you weren't allowed to uh, marry the person you, you had loved and adored in this way, and you weren't allowed to consummate, you weren't allowed to be sexual. And ideally, this person wasn't really available. So it was a kind of, uh, there was a certain purity in the longing and the wanting and the, the, the loving, but without actually um, uh, having to, without being able to act out in any way. So um, it had a lot of suffering inherent within it. Because <laughs> basically, it was, it, was, it was the sort of kind of an unrequited, love and longing, um, so that, I don't really get it, tell you the truth, but anyhow, it sounds really painful to me. <laughs> but it was a way of idealizing uh, the beloved, and idealizing, in this case, the feminine, uh, which I think is a beautiful thing. Um, and so that's where a lot of the ballads, where the medieval ballads came from, the sense of the sense of uh, longing and uh, adoring the other. So, um, but this isn't shared, you know, all over the world. There's many cultures where this is not esteemed and where marriage where isn't determined by love, but by, you know, arranged marriages that are more come out of sort of economic and familial, social, cultural norms. In, Southeast Asia and Africa and many other places. 
was a line that came across written from a Japanese man who was talking about his, his arranged marriage. He said, I was lucky. It only took me 15 years to learn to love my wife. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a beautiful thing. And I hear, I hear stories and read stories about people who have been in arranged marriage. Not that I'm thinking arranged marriage is any better than any other marriage. They both have their pros and their cons. Um, certainly in India, there's, there's, I've often heard a view that people who want to marry in love and in lust are not in their right minds. And that there's a sort of a cultural view of there being much more wisdom and having that arranged, not, not by being caught in the fire of infatuation, which there's um, a point to that too, <laughs> as many of you probably experienced painfully. I read some uh, interesting uh, studies uh, in um, neuropsych that um, talked about how when we're in love, in particular when we're, when we're consumed by lust, that and in the honeymoon phase of a relationship, that the uh, blood flow to a particular part of the frontal lobes that's responsible for decision-making uh, gets reduced. <laughs> <laughs> And you may have experienced that. You may have felt that. You, you know, you're, you're so infatuated that you don't, you're not able to make wise choices, you know, which is, can get us into trouble. Anybody got into trouble with love and lust and infatuation? And, okay, just checking in with human crowd here. This is a great line from, from this is a, a flavor of unrequited love. Love that we cannot have is the one that lasts the longest, hurts the deepest, and feels the strongest. Isn't that the truth? Love that we cannot have is the one that lasts the longest, hurts the deepest, and feels the strongest. So why I'm going into this, uh, this history a little is that, um, because that's real, it so underpins our cultural norms and values and views about what love is. My so, so many relationships are troubled because the ideal, the myth that we maybe taste in the honeymoon period is so idealized that this is how it can be and shall be and always be and could be if we only did the right things to make it continue, right? But as we know, love is something that we, it's, it's a quality that we work at. It's a, it's a quality that, that takes intention and effort and dedication and persistence and uh, practice and commitment and isn't always so glamorous and idealized but is often in you know there's a lot of hard work and grit involved in it this is from Rilke he says for one human being to love another that is perhaps the most difficult of our tasks the ultimate the last test and proof the work for which all our other work is but preparation. For one human being to love another, this is perhaps the most difficult of our tasks. Anybody notice that? It's difficult to love each other. Difficult to love one another. Difficult to love. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, it's also one of the most beautiful things that we have in this life, to receive and to, and to, to love. But it's not so easy. This is the Dalai Lama, who is an expert on this because he's been a monk for 60 years. <laughs> he's talking about marriage and, and committed relationship. He's saying, too many people have, in the West have given up on marriage and relationship. 
but you don't understand that it is about developing a mutual admiration of someone, a deep respect and trust and awareness of another human's needs. The new easy-come, easy-go relationship give us more freedom but less contentment. A lot of wisdom for a monk who's been celibate for 60 years. <laughs> so, and it's, um, you know, just like with anything in our lives and in practice, I think what's, you know, it's really essential that we um, hold this area as other areas in, in our lives with a lot of kindness, a lot of compassion. It seems to be one of the setups as to be embodied, to feel the sense of separation, to, to feel the longing, to feel like wholeness is in union with another, to, um, to be in that, to be in this predicament is, you know, one of the challenges of being a human being. To be out of that union, to be in that union, they're both challenging. The wanting of it, the wanting to be out of it, the wanting for it to be better. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's like one, it's like one of the, um, uh, the inherent, you know, the Buddha talked about this realm as being uh, uh, dukkha, which in, in the sense of incapable of providing lasting satisfaction. So love, however deep and beautiful and rich it is, uh, is unreliable as everything else is in this world. And so to, to hold this part of our lives with some tenderness. And I work as a therapist and as a coach and as a meditation teacher and I work with a lot of students one-on-one. And you know, probably the thing that presents most when people come is, is the stress and the challenge of relationship, of love relationship, either in it, leaving it, wanting it, longing for it, feeling it, it's out of one's reach, feeling sick of it. But this is a lot of our time and energy. The Buddha said if there was another thing as strong as the pull for relationship and love and sexuality, so threading all that as one piece, if there's another thing as strong in human beings as that pull, there wouldn't be any energy left for the spiritual life. Because yeah? it takes up a lot of attention and energy for many people, different times in our lives. So, since as adults we're not really the best authorities, anybody here feel like an authority on love? <laughs> will turn to four-year-olds, four to eight-year-olds, when they're asked what love is. A friend of mine wrote this, has this beautiful book, some of these quotes are from, uh, about um, kids' wisdom. Love is when a girl puts on a perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and they smell each other. I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. (laughs) Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. Not beautiful? 
Love, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. It's like, it's like a line from Mary, Mary Oliver that goes something like, um, each name a comfortable music in the mouth. Um, and then this is from a fourth grade, a little older. I'm not rushing into love. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough, thank you. <laughs> So, of course, talking about love is challenging in, in, in English because the, the word love is used for so many different things. Yeah? We, we interchange the word love with like, um, which I try, I try as a practice not to do because they're two very different things. Um, you know, in the Greek, there was many different words for love. Phila, agape, eros. Um, and there's some very nice translations definitions or interpretations of what agape is, which is very similar to the, to the um, quality of metta. And there was a lot of interchange between the, culture, the Greek culture and the Buddhist culture of northern India a couple of thousand years ago. And I wonder if there was some under, mutual understanding. So Paul Coelho, talking about agape, talks about it as the love that consumes the highest form of love surpassing all other affection. And C.S. Lewis in his book on the four loves uh, about agape, he says a selfless love, agape is a selfless love, a love that was passionately committed to the well-being of the other. And Jesus in his own words when asked what the greatest commandment was, said, love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love the divine, love whatever you know God to be, with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second love is to love your neighbor as yourself, even if you don't like your neighbors. Which I always found very perplexing as a Catholic, not liking my neighbors and having to love them. It was very confusing as a young boy. So, um, so there's romantic love and then there's agape, there's metta, there's these qualities of love that are more, uh, less self-referencing, less conditional, less um, wanting of something from the other. This is Margaret Chase Smith. She writes, in real love you want the other person's good, in romantic love you just want the other person. <laughs> That was a nice description. Now, another way I heard it put is, um, this is a quote about meta. It says, um, uh, meta is want, wanting, I want everything for you, but nothing from you. I want everything for you, but nothing from you. It's very interesting to, you know, to reflect on these things as you think about the people you love in your life, whether it's a partnership or a friend or a family member. Yeah. Uh, do we want everything for them or do we want something from them? Yeah. And, and, and how wanting something from them, of course, you know, we're human beings, so in relationship we usually do, how does that affect or color our capacity to want everything for them? Because if what they want is their freedom, maybe space <laughs> from you, 
Can you love them if that's true for them? This is from Catherine Hepburn. Probably knew some things about love, seems to in this quote. She says, love has nothing to do with what you're expecting to get, only what you are expecting to give, which is everything. Beautiful. Love has nothing to do with what you're expecting to get, only with what you're expecting to give. So matter, as is, is, is taught, is the generosity of heart. And these, these, these sayings are pointing to that. This quality of love is a, is a generous quality. To love is to be generous. To be generous is to love. So if you think about the times when you've been loving or receive love, it can feel like an offering. Yeah, it's like an, it's a quality of abundance. It's a quality, it's a capacity that, that can hold another or a whole room or a whole family or a whole multitude of people and beings that has a quality of giving in it. Giving, allowing, to allow someone to be who they are is a quality of generosity. So this quality of metta, of uh, friendliness, or kindness that the Buddha spoke about, is, is really how he talked about love. He didn't talk so much about, he talked about marriage and the duties of one who's married, um, which are very similar to the, the cultural norms at the time in India. Um, but he spoke about love as the, the boundless potential of the heart. The boundless capacity of the heart to know and love and offer kindness without wanting anything in return. It's a very beautiful quality and it's quite rare. If you think about your experiences of love in this world, in this lifetime, so often it comes with a lot of strings from parents, from siblings, from loved ones. I love that poem from Hafez, a Sufi poet who talks about the sun, the radiance of the sun, and this, this kind of archetype of love, of this giving, this generous heart. And he, and he writes, even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Even after all this time, the sun, with all its generosity and giving, never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens to a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. Look what happens to a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. So, and I've talked a fair bit about metta in, in the last year, so I'm... I'm I'm not going to say too much about it, but I, you know, I'll say some because it, it, I think it's, it, for me, what I found with Meta is it helped extend my understanding of what love is. You know, having mostly, you know, had the, ex- my experience to go on, but that, um, there's not so many people that really embody this quality. Boundless giving, boundless generosity, boundless loving. But it's something that we can cultivate in our lives and in our practice through meditation, through our intention, 
And we can, we can also cultivate it as an attitude. Metta, loving kindness, is an attitude that we can bring to anything, any moment, any experience. Just like when we were sitting. How were you with feeling tired? Or your aches and pains? Or your neighbor who was falling asleep and breathing too loudly? Yeah? Or with your colleagues at work? Or your difficult situation you're in because you're in a difficult relationship? Or your parents are sick? Or your children are in distress at school? How do you meet those? What's, what's the attitude that you bring? Is it friendly? Is it warm? Is it welcoming? Is it inviting? Is it hostile? Is it resistant? Is it impatient? There's this cute story that a a woman told me um, on a metta retreat. She'd been practicing metta a while and she'd had a very particularly difficult relationship with a neighbor, as can often happen. And this neighbor was sort of like the, the grump of the, of the neighborhood and you know, was quite hostile and had an aggressive dog and would always moan and bitch about people as they went past. And <laughs> this was really unpleasant. And she decided, you know, in, in the meta practice, you do extend loving kindness to different types of people, loved ones and people who you feel neutral towards and then also difficult people. And she'd been practicing on this retreat, extending kindness to this person, even though he was very difficult. And um, at the end of the retreat, she's going home and uh, she has to walk past his house and his yard to get to her house <clears throat> after parking a car. And um, she, you know, gets there's an immediate sort of tension as she sees he's in his yard and is expect, you know, expecting some kind of verbal abuse. And But she's like remembering matter and she's practicing kindness and <laughs> You know, even though, and then it's, you know, when you do that for a long enough time, even if it's someone's difficult, you can you can grow to love them, at least internally. But it's a little harder when you come to actually meet them face to face. And uh, so she walks past his house, and he comes down to meet her, and, and she's like, "Oh no, what's he going to say?" And he says, "You know," and she's but she's able to stay pretty open. She says, and he says, "You know, I know I'm really being a jerk, and I've really been a horrible neighbor, and I just want to apologize for all the times I've been abusive and." You know, unfair and you know, unwilling to compromise, and and she's like, wow, this practice really works. <laughs> <laughs> so whether that was because of her attitude or what was happening to him in the moment, who knows? But it's possible. But it depends how we meet the moment. You know, if we meet hostility with hostility, fear with fear, aggression with aggression, what happens? We usually get more of the same. If we meet it with an open heart, there's a little more room, there's a little more possibility. So we practice with ourselves in the meditation, in our lives, meeting ourselves with kindness, with forgiveness, with warmth. And hopefully with that extends, that, that, that leans over to others. Yeah, a little kinder in traffic. Now, this great line, somebody said, uh, I think it was, a, it was a tweet, and uh, it was, um, uh, just remember when you're, hating, when you're hating traffic that you are also traffic. Bitch and moan about all this traffic out there, <laughs> sitting in our car driving alone. <laughs> We're not traffic. So, to extend this quality of 
love to strangers and loved ones and is a practice, is a generosity of heart. I'm always struck when I teach these, these, these meta retreats, um, you know, as much as people probably have fantasies of going on a love retreat and you know, feeling love and radiant and happy and loving all life everywhere. A lot of what happens is people, what they, what they encounter is, is all the stuff that's getting in the way from them being loving. Yeah? The wounds, the pains, the contractions, the disappointments, the hurts, the betrayals. Yeah? So it's actually very painful. And often people come because they're in, they've got health issues and life-threatening issues. And so we had a lot of people in that, in that in going through various kind of hardships. And... Um, and so, the, and the invitation, the, the invitation for everybody there was, was: How do you meet this? How do you meet yourself when you're hurting? When you can't unlock that hard nut in your heart that can't forgive somebody for what they did or what they said or what they didn't do? Yeah. How do we meet those things? And there's a, life will always present us challenges. Yeah. And that's why we practice. We practice on the cushion. We take it off the cushion into our lives, into our relationships. It's a line that I, that I carry around with me a lot, where it says, be kind to every person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. Be kind to every person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. Anybody here not carrying a burden? You know, we've all got our, you know, our, our stuff of life, you know, whatever that is. And you can't know from the outside, like this retreat, everybody looked pretty happy and healthy and you know, and one person had four-stage four lung cancer, and another person was being threatened with her life by a family member. And you know, we went around the room, and each person had their story. So it would be the same here if we asked for your stories. Yeah, there'd be a whole plethora of illnesses and hardships and losses, and yeah. So think about that when we're walking around the streets or at work, you know, that person at work who's really obnoxious. What might be their burden? So I think I want to open the floor. I've got lots of things to say, but I think I want to um, have a little input here from you. I'm going to read a poem. And then um, see what's happening out there. So this is a poem that I love a lot. It's called What the Living Do. And it's a poem about how we respond to the, uh, the messiness of our lives. Anybody feel like they have a messy life? <laughs> it's not all clean and organized and linear and like it looks like on TV. called What the Living Do by Marie Howe. <clears throat> She's writing to her brother, her young 28-year-old brother who passed away <clears throat> not so long ago. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there, and the drainer won't work but smells dangerous and the crusty dishes have piled up, waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky is a headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here 
and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again and again later when buying a hairbrush. This is it, slamming the car door in the street. Slamming the car door shut in the cold, what you called that yearning, what you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not to call. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, my chapped face, an unbuttoned coat that I'm speechless. I am living and I remember you. So I love that poem because it really does speak to the messiness of our lives and how we can, even in that messiness and the complicated, the difficult, the drain's blocked and the heating doesn't work and you know, nothing, you know. Oh yeah, how do I, you know, and there's a moment we turn and we see ourselves, there's a little openness and there's a little warmth, a little kindness. So we all have that capacity. So spiritual teachings, I'm going to close with this, spiritual teachings say that we don't have to go anywhere to seek love. That the love we're seeking, as Rumi says, the love that we're looking for is the one that's doing the looking. We look outward, and as the poet Han Shan says, the the, um, he says something really wise, can't remember what it is, anyhow. Um, the more we look outward, the further we get from it. Yeah? And we can spend a lot of time looking outward for love, yeah, thinking it's out there. You know, we, we, because we're conditioned by these myths that, that, that romantic love is the highest ideal of love, and that's that, that we can aspire to. But we have to find that person, the soulmate, whatever, the idealized partner. And then when we get caught in that, we can really lose ourselves and we leave ourselves. Yeah? How many people have left themselves looking, hoping, dreaming, aspiring, waiting, wanting? How long is your life on hold waiting for this idealized person? Yeah? Not saying it doesn't happen, can't happen, won't happen. But we forget about the love that's already here in our own hearts when we're not looking, when we're not seeking, when those quieter times. You know, our meditation practice, our spiritual practice, hopefully metabolizes that we do our work where we. Um, We come to see, we come to feel, we come to sense that this loving quality, this loving presence is not uh, the love that we're really wanting and seeking, is not going to be given to us from anybody outside of ourselves. We can be supported by the love of another, we can enjoy the love of another, we can appreciate give and receive. But the love that provides the contentment and the peace which we're seeking for, 
is as some of these people I've quoted, is the love that we're already in our own heart, the generous heart, the giving heart, the loving heart. And as we practice, we hopefully become more and more attuned to this inequality. We become less caught in ourselves and us and our own press release. This is, I think, from Thomas Merton, who puts it very beautifully. In Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we would not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation and monastic holiness. He was a monk. Christian monk. The sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which the divine became incarnate. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun, that they are the divine become incarnate. So maybe we have moments of that, maybe in meditation, maybe out in nature, maybe with a loved one, maybe in the burning fire of loss. I often feel like I I learn more about love in loss than I do in love. There's so much to be learned in the fire of grief and the fire of loss and the fire of loneliness and aloneness. And that if we can learn to bring a loving presence to that, it's a beautiful resource, a beautiful support in learning how to love whatever shows up. And when beauty or the beloved or someone crosses our path, there's tremendous love available. So this is from Nisargadatta Maharaj. Great teacher from India. Be true to yourself and love yourself absolutely. Do not pretend that you love others as yourself. Unless you have realized them as one with yourself, you cannot love them in that way. Don't pretend to be what you are not. Don't refuse to be what you are. So, any um, thoughts, reflections, questions, comments, Valentine experiences? <laughs> Actually, I have to have a thought. I was thinking as you were saying that. Um, <clears throat> something I read a long time ago, I mean, remember Reader's Digest, they used to have um, little books, and at the bottom they'd have these little quotes, and it was something that, I think it was like 12 or 13, uh, something that said... Um, it's not so much finding the right person as being the right person. Mm. And it's stuck with me ever since then. Yeah. Yeah. Reader's Digest, what do you know? Yeah, I know. Here it was. <laughs> the wisest thing I've ever heard. From... Here you go. I like that. Comments? Questions? Yes. 
observations. Uh, thank you. Um, my name is Vanya, and uh, glad to be here. Mm -hmm. um, nice to see you. When I uh, I spontaneously burst into that Joe Cocker song on an especially beautiful day, you know, walking this earth, mm. and I sing it to the earth. Mm. It just says it all. <clears throat> um, I just want to tell a story. Um, I was at this, uh, I don't know what you call it, intentional community, and uh, the guru was having uh, a session. And this, um, I think she must have been 11 or 12, she raised her hand and she said, Bob, do I really have to love everyone? And he said, you don't have to love everyone, just don't hate anyone. Who was the teacher? Who was the teacher, by you? Um, it was at the. It was at the uh, Madonna Mountain. Hmm. Not Madonna. Yeah. Mm -hmm. About Fifteen years ago, I'm not sure what. Hmm. That story stuck with me though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. I just wanted to share um, my favorite definition of love, which was given by my grandmother which resonated with things you said earlier. She said that love is holding close with open hands. Mm. Nice. Love is holding close with open hands. Nice. It's a great metaphor. I just keep remembering as things unfolded last Friday <clears throat> in Cairo, <coughs> excuse me, mm. to see the joy that erupted so suddenly from all those people who were in total despair <coughs> because Thursday it looked like it was going very badly. Mm -hmm. And that just seemed like the biggest expression of love I think I've ever seen on the planet. Mm. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was a powerful moment. Comments, questions, observations? Bad Valentine's jokes? The one we listened to? You Are So Beautiful. You Are So Beautiful? Oh. That one. Yeah. All right, folks. Well, um, Nice to be with you, and um, <clears throat> happy Valentine's, whatever you do. May you be the sweetest Valentine to yourself, as, as um, Oscar Wilde says. To love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. As my teacher in India used to say, marry the one that will never leave you. <laughs> and he wasn't talking about somebody. So, okay, nice to be with you. Take care. So, um, 